0: I'm Bill Wilson, and along with my friend Jim Gibson, I started a little punk label called Blackout Records in 1989. Over the years, we've released records from H2O, Killing Time, Sheer Terror, Killy Riles, Dead Guy, The New Bomb Turks, and many more. The Mad at the World podcast is a collection of conversations with our bands and extended family who have great stories to tell about their records, their art, the road, and growing up against the grain. Welcome to the Mad at the World podcast, episode four. Today we're talking to the goops. In the early to mid-90s, the band put out a full length, two seven inches, made a video that was all over Beavis and Butthead, and toured the country what seems like countless times with Rancid, Sam I Am, and a lot more. When I dug up uh, a review uh, of the band that was somewhere in the press about one of their shows, uh, one of their tour shows, it said, this spunky... Punk Pop Borsum will be opening for Sam I Am Monday at Ground Zero. They're set at CB's, meshed perfectly with that fabled dingy bomb shelter of a bar, as the band conjured visions of the New York punk scene of 77, New York Dolls, Blondie, Ramones, and all. In more modern terms, again, this was written in 1992, uh, imagine if Madonna went through a punk phase and took over Green Day. So that's what they said about you guys. With that, let's say hello to everybody from the band. So, Brad, guitar player.
1: Hi, this is Brad. I'm glad to be here. (laughs) And that review is from 1995, not -hmm. from 92.
2: Yeah, get it right, Bill.
0: Whatever. It's all... That's all right. I have... uh, Introduce me to your friends. I have early (laughs) onset uh, forgetfulness. Uh, Mr. (laughs) Hexley is the drummer... Primary drummer, although there were a series of exploding drummers in the band prior to uh, Mr. Hefman joining full-time, I guess. Um,
3: so Jeff, say hi. Hello. Can you hear me? We can. All right, Do, there we, you go. do we want to? How's everybody doing? <laughs> and,
0: of course, uh, we also have uh, Eleanor uh, beaming in directly from Los Angeles. I am here. Ooh, Hollywood. Excellent. So to kick things off... I just want to ask all of you how you found your way to punk rock and eventually to the LES in New York City because you guys were not all New York City kind of NYC natives. So, Eleanor, what's your,
2: what's your story? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, I found my way to it probably through the rodeo bar where I worked on Lexington and 28th. That's where I met Brad. And Brad was playing in this band, uh, like a cowpunk, as it were, band called the Ya Boys. And I married their bass player, Pete. And Brad and Pete and I formed the first nucleus of the goops. That's kind of a capsule explanation.
0: Yeah, but before before you found your way to New York, you grew up, and like there were things in your life that made you start to listen to punk. Yeah, pupil form (laughs) Eleanor, what what made you what you what what turned you on about punk rock versus you know other stuff?
2: Oh, definitely attitude, definitely attitude. I mean, uh, there was a while there where I was only listening to. I mean, I I used to get mad when they would compare the goops to Blondie, and I felt like the only reason they did that was because my hair was bleached blonde. But the truth is, I did listen to a lot of Blondie. I mean, who didn't? I used to roller skate and listen to Blondie. I mean, they were just...
3: I didn't listen to them.
0: (laughs) Who didn't? (laughs) Heffman didn't. (laughs) So Heffman, how how did you find your way to punk rock?
3: Uh, Just, I was always listening to all kinds of different music when I was growing up. And I actually, when I was really young, I was listening to like weird, like Latin jazz stuff because of my mom, my mom who grew up in Brooklyn. So that was my kind of connection to New York. But uh, Eleanor was the one that kind of coaxed me to come in and play with the Goops. But I found my way basically just because uh, I played in a whole bunch of different bands before the Goops. And I got into, like, garage stuff, and I got into, like, the Sonics and things like that, and Iggy Pop, and I just kind of started listening to all kinds of different stuff, Gang of Four and the Ramones and, you know, a lot of British stuff. And uh, You're always really into ska. I love the specials a lot. Like, the specials were really big to me. And, yeah, so I was playing all different kinds of music, but then Eleanor – and I reconnected in New York because we had actually played in a band years before in the mid 80s in Pennsylvania. And I bumped into her. I think we were like, I was literally walking down the street in New York, and I bumped into her. And she said, Oh my God, I have this band and we need a drummer. And so after <laughs> being a drummer summer, just exploded. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it was like, I just was like, Oh yeah, you know, and I came in and I met Brad and I met Pete. The bass player and oh my god, it was like it was just fun. That was that was what really drew me to it. It was just fucking fun. We just had a ball. We we you know at one point I think we paid more attention to what we were going to wear or not wear on stage <laughs> than, than exactly if we were going to make, make it through a whole song or not. <laughs> <laughs> Those were the days. Well, fun was the fun was the uh, that was the main thing.
0: And Brad, so you did not grow up in Pennsylvania. And you but so what was your what was your musical journey that that brought you to punk rock and then eventually to New York City?
1: Uh central Massachusetts. Um frightfully isolated from civilization, considering that I was like an hour and a half from Boston and I don't know, maybe three and a half hours from New York City. <laughs> isolated enough that when I finally got out of there and went to art school I was pissed off that I'd missed like you know half a decade's worth of fucking. I, w- I was into the Clash in high school. That was pretty much like the only punk rock band that I really got exposed to. When you know sophomore or junior year, somebody's older sister came back from college with like a couple Clash records. But other than that, like and maybe Iggy, we just weren't really exposed to much. But yeah, as soon as I got to like, as soon as I got down to to uh, Providence where I went to college. I just dove in headfirst, man. What's it like? Started just going to hardcore shows and every single punk show that came through.
0: It's just just funny because my whole upbringing was first, you know, the super classic rock stuff. And, you know, on, on another episode of the podcast, I mentioned that even Yonkers, which was, you know, 20 minutes from the city and even less from the Bronx, you know, was a cultural no-fly zone,
2: <laughs>
0: you know, un- until until I found downtown. And, you know, even in the 80s, it was still kind of stuck in the late 70s. Yes. Where you still had, like, the old school, like, rock clubs. Yes. And yes. you still had all that stuff, and it just seemed to be a throwback. You know, it was definitely not the 80s of the John Cusack movie. I'll tell you that. (laughs) You know, and so that's kind of, you know, when I look at the evolution, you know, anybody who lived even farther out was probably even more disconnected from these epicenters of like bohemian culture.
1: Right. Yeah, it was shocking. I mean, I I remember, you know where I actually heard like a lot of uh, like New Wave and punk rock, which I didn't even realize it was at the time was on Dr. Demento. Ah, how awesome. Like they used to play the Talking Heads and he like played it like it was some kind of joke music. And then, I mean, this is why I was so fucking angry when I finally reached civilization. And I realized that this is like, was a whole movement that had been going on for, you know, how long at that point? And I'd missed out on it, but thankfully, I didn't miss out on it after that that's I mean, and that's probably why I ended up moving to New York because I went for the heart of it. you know
2: no, you just reminded me brad the the first time I heard or saw punk rock was watching Devo on Saturday Night Live,
3: yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, and, and then, satisfaction.
2: Right, and then watching like um, other bands like the Clash on Midnight Special, that type of thing. I've forgotten all about that. I actually got beaten up for what, like liking Devo. There was like a big schism <laughs> in Easton, where Brett, where um, Jeff, and I are from, and you could either like Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, AC/DC, or you could admit that you liked. Devo and some other bands and get, and David Bowie and get beaten up. And <laughs> that's what happened to me. Yeah. yeah.
0: It wasn't the same, you know, there really wasn't the same attention to feelings that the younger <laughs> kids <say>
2: now. <laughs> no. Oh God, no. No.
0: <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. Bill, only- you were probably the youngest. You were probably the youngest to, to get into this shit because you were like a child of hardcore, and that was way more sophisticated than, uh, I, oh, hey, hey,
3: hey.
2: you know what I'm saying. Like you were going to hardcore shows when you were like a teenager, and I cannot claim that.
0: Right. Well, I mean, it's all. I mean, it's all based on proximity, right? I mean, I grew up in Yonkers with a shitload of record stores around me. Yeah. Right. All of my friends would go to the record stores. We would, you know, I mean, we went. From probably late 80s, I mean, sorry, late 70s listening to Deep Purple. (laughs) Yeah. You know, before that was Kiss. Right. And then ACDC and Pink Floyd in school, because that's what everybody listened to, you know. And then swiftly getting into New Wave of British Heavy Metal, Iron Maiden, Judas Priest, etc. And then, you know, in the span of a few years, that turning into thrash metal, then, in, then into death metal, and then the guy at the record store handing me a black flag record and said, "No." Right. No,
2: no. Right. That's a that's a progression. That makes total sense.
0: Right, and it was it was interesting because that's the path that so many of my friends actually took. Like we came at this from the rock side. I've gone back, right, because I love it so much. To you know, go back to the roots of go back to the seventies punk rock, to go back to the Ramones, to right. go back. to go back to you know gang of four and then even before that like you know hearing the elements of what would become punk even in kind of going back and listening to things that wouldn't even be considered punk like the kinks
3: and then
0: going back to like mc5 and the stooges and then even further back to kind of the lyrical part of rock and roll which is still fucking hank williams
3: right right i still listen to all that stuff i listen to all that stuff all the time
0: I came out. The van music was when we play, When we all hung out together, right? Like yeah. that was like, everything was just in a mishmash. Right.
2: In the van, did you say? Yeah. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> you know yeah. what? Speaking of which, and I can't remember what it was. It was something I had watched in the last week and the soundtrack, I swear to God, this is true, in the background was that bizarre Polynesian record that we used to listen to over and over and over again. Do you remember? We used to dance it Martin, to it? Martin Denny? Oh yeah. no it wasn't Martin Denny. It was an actual Polynesian artist. The, the vinyl of which I dug up somewhere and put on cassettes so and we could take it on tour.: Oh no. That's fucking awesome. Yeah. If I were to play that for <laughs> you right now, you'd all have like a complete flashback. It, it was on <laughs> heavy rotation in the van. And then it was on the background of this thing I was watching. I, would, and I was sitting next to Michael. I was like, Oh my God, that's that record. That's that record that we played the crap out of. And he didn't know what I was talking about. So whatever.
0: So you got the blanks stare and the blinks. Yes. <laughs>
2: Which is my life.
0: <laughs> so, so, you know, you guys came to the city, you kind of found each other, you and Heffman knew each other. Obviously, you know, you, Pete, and Brad kind of formed the nucleus of the goops. But, you know, dive a little bit more into the crazy time that it was in New York there, because the social context of the Lower East Side was very different than the kind of Kardashianified guess, <laughs>
3: yeah. of,
0: of, of the way that it exists now, right? The Lower East Side was still a mecca for alternative culture. Again, you know, pre-internet. And so it was still and filled with, you know, I think half of our friends were busboys or pizza makers right. or <laughs> yeah, pizza boy,
3: Benny's Burritos.
0: Right? And so it was this ver- this entire ecosystem in that early 90s you know, was was this completely different planet. And then you had this, like, new kind of rock music explosion that was happening, whether it be from the, you know, Matador side with the indie rock stuff and Pavement and Dada by Voices and, you know, stuff like that, or, you know, to the kind of more heavier stuff like Helmet, which was kind of riding the lines Mm -hmm. of multiple genres, or the Unsane... And then you had this whole resurgence of kind of like punk rock and kind of the whole kind of circus that it was down there. So, you know, all of you guys kind of that's where I know that I met you guys was actually through Armand from Sick of It All. Oh, that's right. (laughs) Because Armand was a partner in the label and was randomly in front of CB's one night, saw you guys play a show, and came back to the apartment building that I happened to live in it was the, the building that I lived in on, on Avenue A was kind of like this weird, like punk rock Seinfeld building. <laughs> where Steve Martin from nasty little man and formerly of agnostic front lived up, like basically upstairs from, from, for me. And then I would be going up there all the time and we would just be, you know, kind of doing the, uh, you know, the kicking in the door of the apartment, regardless of what hour of the day and just walking into their house. <laughs> you know, same shit. And, you know, Armand was a, like I said, was a partner on the label at the time. And he's, you know, came back one night from CBs and said, Hey, you got to see this band. And that's how I remember we all hooked up, but that was the kind of state of the universe that was the Lower East Side, right? It was this very self-contained kind of like bubble and pretty off the hook. As far as I recall, as far as like nightlife and insanity and drinking and fighting and all sorts of fluid things happening. I wasn't I the drummer
3: know. at that moment. At that, that was when I was on my Irish hiatus. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I was Irish living in hiatus. Ireland.
2: <laughs>
3: <laughs> and so I was living over there and then I came back. I mean, the band was like when I left everybody was kind of rolling around on the floor in a, you know, in a pile of empty beer cans.
2: (laughs) I don't know what you're talking
3: about. (laughs) And then I I came back and it's like, I bump into Brad and he's like, Hey man, uh, our drummer, you know, something happened. He blew up or whatever. And
2: He, he was OG'd just like, like, on our doorstep. He's he like, You're die. the last
3: person, you're the last person, you know, I'd ever want in my band again, but we need you to come and play drums. So. <laughs> I was like, Okay. And then I got, and. but you were already with Blackout at that point. So you guys had already met while I was gone.
1: We'd already made the record, dude.
3: Yeah, you already made the record. And then you put my face on the, you put, a picture of me on that record with <laughs> that terrible drumming on that record. <laughs> but uh, it's a cool record Though the songs on that record, I really, I really love the songs, especially the day I met Iggy, which I think is just such a fucking great song. Well, I it's wish I was playing drums on
1: it. I'm embarrassed to say, I mean, I shouldn't be embarrassed, but I just, I was listening to the record, some of the tracks recently. And um, it's so like, it's so Detroit. I mean, yes. There's a lot of Detroit in there. And the funny thing is, so Pete, who Eleanor mentioned earlier, uh, they were married, but Pete and I had been old buds. We'd been in a previous band together. We'd basically moved to the city together. And the funny thing about, I think, that record, when I listen back to it now, is like Pete was kind of like our our muse for that band. absolutely. A lot of those songs are actually like, well, some of them are just straight up true stories, but some of them... Island Earth? That's very Pete. Yeah, but it's almost like there's a lot of inside jokes. I mean, yes. Booze Cabana is literally an inside joke between Pete and I that we wrote as a joke song. And, I mean, that that record would have been totally different without Pete. It, I mean, it's literally like he was the muse. I mean, he, he obviously he wrote a lot of the music and a lot of the lyrics, too, but it was more like he was a muse. <laughs> That's a really good way of
2: putting it. Yeah. He definitely had a huge musical influence on that record. And he brought the Detroit. He's the one that really turned me on. I had heard obviously Iggy and the MC5 and a lot of these lesser known Detroit bands, but he really showed me, like, he really helped me appreciate that. And he was going through that Detroit phase at that point because that was his band, Warrior Soul. His, uh, co-writer in that band was from Detroit. So he was getting all of these like demos from these like unknown Detroit bands and bringing them home. And we were listening to them. We were just like, Oh, we want to sound like this. Like, um, uh, I am trying to remember who the bands were. Um,
3: so, this f- Fred Sonic Smith.
2: Oh yeah, well definitely oh, yeah. him. But like I'm talking about like the real like obscure like des- like destroy all monsters. They're not that obscure, but that had a huge influence on the Goops. They're, Avengers. Uh, what was yeah, it the, the Avengers? Avengers. Yeah, yeah, definitely the uh, the Gories. They were more uh, mod sounding, but they were like mod Detroit. I mean, I just, those really influenced me, I have to say.
1: Yeah. I mean, we're all in love with that sound. And, uh, but I think when people hear the two records, the Blackout record and the, the second record we made for reprise, like it sounds, they sound a lot different. And it, it was Pete was a lot of it, but also I think, you know, the fact that we, uh, There was I I was definitely taking kind of a departure in the early 90s from punk rock, and I was listening to a lot of heavier stuff, like a lot of the Detroit stuff. I was listening to, like, Masters of Reality and, like, The Nymphs. And, like, I can hear all of that stuff on that record. And then it's almost like the second record was kind of a return to our punk roots, which I think came about because we ended up just touring the the fucking...
0: Yeah, I mean... The evolution of the band is is definitely interesting, but i want to i want to continue to kind of pull the thread of like New York at the time because it's such a part of who you were, and it's such a part of kind of that lifestyle and it's you know
1: here's a funny okay, so when you talked about the fact that it was like it's i mean essentially what you had was it was a giant service industry of of people in bands and artists like serving each other, right like Everybody yep. was like a waitress and had a band or was an artist and like a bartender and like we're all hooking each other up and with drinks and pizza thanks Kev <laughs>
2: <laughs> turbo 18
1: yes <laughs> and um and meanwhile like yeah the NYU kids that were brave enough to make it all the way to avenue A were kind of paying the tab for the rest of us right
0: yeah yeah and it was crazy because You know, I remember coming home from work. I was working at Caroline Distribution at the time. I would come from home from work. I would probably take like a nap. I would grab like 20 or like 40 bucks or whatever it is. And I would go out. And usually my destination of choice was pretty much, you know, three of cups for dinner (laughs) right and then because kevin was there and then i would order like a plate of pasta and get like an 18 course meal (laughs) (laughs) and then and then i would find it was be ending and and, you know and instead of getting charged for like four plates you get charged for like one and a half and then a free dessert at the end and you're like busting gut (laughs) and then you know would make my way to no tell at like 10 or 11 (laughs) and be there until friggin the wee hours and seeing like the fighting, the drugs, <laughs> like, whatever it is, and at the time I didn't really drink a lot, so I would walk in there with like 20, bu- 20, 20 bucks, and same thing with Coney Island and you know Coney Island High and something else. I would walk in, I would like say hi to either you or Pam, you know, or Claw or Lucy or whoever, and I would put like thirty dollars down on the bar all night, and I was just like, okay, and <laughs> it would just happen. Right. You know, always tip your bartenders. First of all, that's the key. Always. Right. Even if they're your friends, motherfuckers still have to eat and pay rent. So no schnorris. But (laughs) seriously. And then, you know, but it was that kind of, you know, economy that existed where everybody was was part of this this. Very, very hedonistic artistic community.
3: <laughs> well, well, what was going on, basically, you have to remember, at that time, I mean, Eleanor's apartment, when I first moved in with Brad and Eleanor, it was a bunch of abandoned buildings down there. You know, so it was like, and, and the the rent was like 250 a month, you know. So you could be an artist and have basically like a part-time job, and you could survive down there. And everybody helped each other out, like you said, I mean, Eleanor and I would go to like the Great Jones at midnight, and we'd clear the tables out of the way after they stopped serving, and, and Warren, the bartender, Aww,
2: Warren. And the Empire,
3: yeah, you had the Empire State Soul Club, and we would just like put some money in the jukebox, and we'd freaking dance till four o'clock in the morning, Yeah, and he'd give us power loungers all night for free, you know? and then <laughs> oh, we'd tip wow. on him. <laughs> Do
1: you remember the flashlight?
2: I oh, remember like, the flashlight. I fucking invented it. No, it's not a dance. It's a drink.
3: Yeah. But but
2: lemonade and vodka with a splash of cranberry. That's the flashlight. Uh, flashlight. Yeah. But
3: that whole era at that time, Tompkins Square was full of homeless people. And then all of a sudden, the police came in, and Giuliani came in, and he started chasing all these people out of these homes that they, you know, buildings that had been abandoned by the city, and people spent their own money and years of their lives fixing up. And then he comes in and says, get the fuck out, you know, with, with nothing. And then the police closed down. They put a big fence around Thompson Square Park. I mean, there was it was like a riot down there.
1: It was exactly like a riot. <laughs>
2: I think Giuliani has a bright future.
3: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who'd have thought? But uh, that, that had a lot to do with the art that was happening, I think, was because, you know, you didn't have to spend your whole life just trying to pay your fucking rent. You know what I mean?
1: It seemed like you did, though.
3: (laughs) Still. Yeah, but I mean, now that that apartment that we lived in is like $3,000 a month.
1: Oh, probably more.
2: No, I was trying to explain that to some folks out here in L.A. Like, they were asking about, you know, New York in the 90s and whatnot. And I was like, you know, the one thing that really occurs to me, being a bartender, I, I would definitely, you know, I never paid for a drink in the city from... 1980 till like when I left or whenever, but it's the food you could eat like a King for $6. Yes, yeah.
3: absolutely. Yeah. You
2: know, at a lot of those Polish restaurants, uh, in the East village. Like, I mean, that's literally how I lived. Cause I didn't have a kitchen. You guys remember, I didn't have a kitchen for a yeah. long time.
3: <laughs> well, do you remember the, we used to get falafel. It was a dollar 50 and you get yes. you get it. It was enough to fill you up for the whole day.
0: Totally. Yeah. That's how Be everybody cool. stays so trim. <laughs> yeah,
1: she, <laughs> <do that. laughs> yeah I ate one meal a day.
0: Yeah. So that's the kind of atmosphere that everybody was there. And for me, I don't know about you guys, but I don't think I watched television or the news no. or anything for probably the entire 90s. Yeah. Like, no. <laughs> I was so involved in that microcosm, that freaking terrarium that was the insanity of the Lower East Side, and like all the shit that I was doing, and all the shit that the bands were doing. But I don't recall anything happening in the outside world.
1: Oh, no. That's so true. I don't know any 90s sitcoms. I, I, I didn't see any of them, any 90s TV shows.
3: Yeah, the the, the the East Village, I remember being there for like, you know, not leaving a 10-block area for like Nine months straight, you know, and it's like oh, we were yeah. gigging all every week ahead, and we're like, you know, going out every night, and there was just so much to do in that little area. You know, it was. And was God
0: forbid, somebody asked you to go out above Fourteenth Street, and you get a
3: fucking nosebleed. Yeah, oh my God, yeah, <laughs> I didn't want to go all the way the fuck up there. I'm like, I'm not going all the way up there. Yeah, I
0: didn't think about Fourteenth Street was midtown, apparently. At least that's what I had. Oh, I'm not going all the way up there. What the fuck is over there?
3: And then I moved. Then I moved to 200. Uh, I lived on. Coming and semen, in <laughs> <laughs> Inwood.
2: But spelled is
0: <laughs> Real streets, real streets. There are plenty of photographs of of the of the
3: intersection of Coming and Seaman. Yeah, that's where I lived for like ten years. I lived there.
0: Yeah, I remember like picking you up, and like always, it was just kind of like you know, it it was like a trip to a different universe going up
3: to yeah. Inwood. Yeah, it was kind of I kind of liked it up there, but. I spent so much money on cabs. I probably could have had like an incredible apartment in the East village at the time. But I was like, every night I go down and I just be at Eleanor's and and with you know, she lived with Brad at the time. And then it was like, I just was down there every day. And then when it was time to go home at five o'clock in the morning or something like that, I just hail a cab and take a $25 cab ride home.
0: Mm, Is that all? That's all. (laughs) Wow. Including. So, so, we met the record kind of came out first, you know, we changed the picture on the back to include Heffman <laughs> um and then and then, you know, did the video what yeah, and then you guys made the video, and like you know it, it kind of came about again through like the offices of Nasty little man because. At the time I moved, I I was working at Caroline, but then I started working for a heavy metal label called Earache, And we shared office space in the puck building.
3: Yeah, I remember that.
0: And that was like a crazy time because Steve was doing PR for the beasties, the pumpkins, you know, so many different bands. And he was also doing all the, the entombed records. He was doing carcass. He was doing everything. And then you had, you know, his cast of characters in The Office, like Sweeney, who introduced me to Guided by Voices, you know, to put that record out. And, you know, this came with, like, this group of creative people, one of whom was David Kleiler, the director of the video. Ah,
2: oh, yeah. Did.
0: And I don't know exactly what happened. I knew that I wanted to do a video, right? You know, that was the whole thing. And in retrospect, I probably should have done more videos, but, you know.
3: 2000 bucks. That video cost $2,000. Yeah.
0: I mean, but for, for for me at the time, it might as well have been a fucking million. You know, right, you know? right, yeah, yeah.
3: right.
0: <laughs> you know, it was just crazy because, you know, upon reflection, I didn't realize how little of a pot I had to piss in. <laughs> right? I thought I could do everything just by sheer force of will, and that's the advantage of being 20 years old where you don't fucking know any better. And I don't know who came up with the attack of the 50-foot Eleanor concept.
3: It was probably Clyler. I think it was Eleanor, wasn't it?
0: I don't think so. I think it was David. Oh, okay. But it was like, it was fucking terrific because like, I just remember that my parents were cracking up because they shot part of that video in my parents' kitchen. That's right.
3: Toby, right? That (laughs) guy,
2: Toby. Yeah, the actor who played uh, Sinatra for so many years.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Cause they got all these like MTV, like act, skit actors to be in it, which was actually pretty good. That dude. Yeah. Cause he definitely looked like Sinatra. He was always like, yeah. he was like the crooner character, the heartthrob character and like all these MTV skits when, uh, when Kyler was uh, working there and, and Amy Finnerty was, was there. And then because of, again, this of this group of people that we hung out with, we, we, got this $2,000 video and it became like a staple of
1: Beavis. Yeah. <laughs> murder,
3: murder site. That was the episode.
1: It was crazy. Hole was in that episode too, right? Yeah.
3: And John Fogarty <laughs> doing the uh, old man down the road or something like that. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
0: <laughs> it wasn't too specific, but it got you guys a look that was, was pretty good. And that led to maybe I have the timeline wrong, but that led to another kind of contact from the hardcore world that I had, Stormy Shepherd. Yes. You guys had yet to kind of really break out of New York. And I don't know, you know, chicken and egg, video came first, Stormy came first. I don't fucking remember. Right. But I remember talking to her and I sent her the record and she's like, I love this. I love them. I want them to go on tour with this new band Rancid. Have you heard of them, right? And I'm like yes, because the first record had just come out. So I recall you guys playing a show at Don Hills, and then Tim came to see you guys.
1: Yeah. Oh,
2: he came to see us at at Squeeze Box. I didn't realize that. Yeah, he came to
0: he came to a Squeeze Box show. Who's
2: and Tim? For,
3: Tim, who?
0: Yeah, and and for the uninitiated, Lint. kind of. <laughs>
3: Oh, Tim Armstrong. Okay, <laughs> Tim. <laughs> Tim who? <laughs>
0: but like, for describe for the listenership, as it were, kind of the vibe of Don Hills because it is so unlike a hardcore show. It is literally the polar opposite of hardcore show.
2: Yes, that's true. the The polar opposite of a hardcore show, absolutely. However. I think of it as like the epitome of a New
0: York show. Oh, fuck yeah, without question. That's why I enjoy going to these shows more than I like going to hardcore shows, Like In the 90s, you would go to a hardcore show and it was more like going to a fucking street fight. (laughs) Right, yeah. You know, 20 dudes for every dude. Everybody was just staring at each other. Everybody was just like the same stuff, you know? And for me, being able to be around a good male to female ratio was uh, important to me <laughs> at the time. Right. It wasn't just like, yeah, I'm just going to go here and be hard. Like, no, like that. And that's just weird. Sausage party. Like I wanted New York at the time. It, it, that place represent kind of the, the pinnacle of like New York decadence because you had, it was run by, you know, Miss Guy. And this was for Micah. You know, torment, torment, Pat, was at the door, Torment was at yeah. the door. And like, it was this great kind of, you know, rock and roll party.
1: Yeah. Yeah. People
0: were getting shit faced. People were hooking up. It's like everybody was having a good time.
1: That party. So, Michael Schmidt, that was basically, he was the promoter of that party. And when we got the Rancid tour, we had a show there. And while we were sound checking, I'm like, so, dude, we're going on tour with uh, this band, Rancid. Have you ever heard of him? And he pulls open his jacket and he's wearing a Rancid t shirt. So that's Aww, the vibe. Oh,
2: I didn't know that story. That's so awesome.
1: Yeah, he was stoked. Also,
2: I think that the connection there at Squeezebox was um, that Miss Guy and Mistress Formica were both, like you say, really into rock and roll and punk rock. And all of the drag artists that would perform there were kind of of that ilk. Oh, yeah. And so that's what made the connection, I think, between um, that world of the drag artists and the East Village and, and whatnot. Like, there was a real rock and roll connection. And Miss Guy, uh, did she have the Toilet Boys then? Or no? Yeah, was that- well, shortly yeah.
1: after that. Yep. But but also, Probably. that was the first drag party where they had a live band. Like, yeah. Drag X never even... You know, most of the time it was lip syncing, right? Right. So, and if you don't know what squeeze box is, you've been to a squeeze box party because it spawned fucking parties all over the world. After that, like, there's been so many pretenders to uh, the squeeze box vibe.
0: Well, when I try to describe it to people, I usually say, "If you've ever seen Rocky Horror, <laughs> it's basically like think about." the time warp scene. Yes. <laughs> that's pretty much what, that's pretty much what Squeezebox was. Right.
3: Yeah, but Squeezebox was really great because you could just kind of, I had never been around drag queens before, really. And it was just such a non-judgmental, ju- non-judgmental sort of atmosphere, you know? And you could, oh yeah, anything went. I, I just made so many friends there. We had, I mean, I could go there on an off night and, and Don would like, I could give him a seat a CD and he'd play like Cal Jader and Presperado and stuff like that. You know, we'd just dance all night. And then you go to another night, it's a punk rock show. Or
1: Well, let's just say, dear Don Hill, RIP. I I mean. Yes, yes. He's passed away.
3: Yeah, he was a great guy.
1: One of the greatest, maybe the greatest like rock club owners in New York. Super nice guy.
3: Didn't he own Bitter End and Kenny's Castaways or something?
1: He had Kenny's and then the Cat Club and then Don Hill's.
2: He was such a great advocate. He's such a great uh, supporter of the whole drag scene and also the punk scene. And I just loved him. And he was a sweetie, a lovely person. Great demeanor.
1: Love that guy.
0: Yeah. So then, you know, I think one of the best things that I ever did, and I don't know, you know, and again, my timeline remembering is a little chicken and eggy. (laughs) But I remember that I I bought a van for Blackout, right? Oh, yeah. (laughs) And we broke the cherry on it, (laughs) right? Yeah. That thing became kind of like the engine for you guys, for H2O, for Powerhouse, for the turbo ACs to all hit the road, you know, very reasonably. I remember, I think the first time... Did I get a van from Fantastic for you guys the first time you went out?
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was the uh, Ranted Tour. I remember, oh, I rented vans
0: for sheer terror, and that was fucking astronomical. I remember them going on tour and being like, what, I could just buy a van for all this fucking money. Yeah. yeah. And so I remember very clearly, you know, going to, like, Queens and buying, like, a, like a Ford Conlon, and then... Brad, I think, did you come with me to buy it? You may have. Because I remember we went to... I
1: don't remember. I don't remember. I
0: definitely did consult with you because we we brought it to this conversion place and we did like the low bar conversion. Oh yeah,
1: I got the wall put in the back.
0: We got, we had the wall put in the back. We had the hockey puck lock put on it. We had the window put in so it wasn't just like, didn't look just like a prison van. Right, right, right. (laughs) Yeah,
1: I think I did. I think I might've gone with you.
0: And then the uh, and then the, the the bench seats that actually folded down into a fucking bed, so everybody could sleep. Essential. And that was like kind of the ultimate touring vehicle for for everybody. But I think that's the thing, yeah. Because I remember when we went on the road, because I drove you guys and was kind of like your roadie on the on the Rancid tour. That van. There was a lot of miles. When that that thing finally got put to bed, it had over a half a million miles on. It. Sure, <laughs> sure. Mm. that's great. <laughs> all rock and roll. What an endorsement! Yeah, it was all rock and roll miles. It, it should have had a Viking funeral. That fucking thing. <laughs> <laughs> I have to I have to ask Chris Powerhouse because he's the wound up one who wound up with it in California.
1: Oh, I'm sure it was completely worn the fuck right out, man. <laughs>
0: Oh yeah, I mean, but he, you know, everybody was very diligent about the maintenance. I just remember, like you know, us doing that. And um, but anyway, we went on the Rancid tour, and the first date, I think it was at the Black Cat.
3: Yeah.
1: Oh, in DC.
3: Yeah.
0: Yeah, wasn't yeah. it the first date in DC? Maybe. Yeah, we had to
3: stay, had to stay at events so we wouldn't get robbed. No, no, that was the that was later in DC. But, but you're
1: right, so. that was in DC because the Black Cat wasn't down, wasn't in. That was nine thirty that we 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 almost got oh, Black Cat was yeah. in a better neighborhood. But yeah, we went down to Black Cat and I'll never forget it. after the show, Lint goes to me, he's like, Wow, that was a great set. You guys, we should we should uh we should do a tour or something sometime. <laughs>
3: Uh, we
1: are. And I was like, I think we are. I think this is the first show. It just
0: so happens you're going to be seeing us a lot more of us tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day. <laughs> That's hilarious. And I
1: hope that doesn't sound disrespectful because I love that man. But he obviously had a lot on his mind at the time. Yeah.
0: Well, we had a – I mean, that tour in itself was, like, for me, a benchmark of kind of, like
1: – it altered
0: my personality somewhat, I'll tell you. But <laughs> – no, it did. Like, I I will firmly admit that I was a little freaking, like, you know, a, a little too straight before.
1: Was it your Almost Famous?
0: It was kind of. Oh, <laughs> yeah. my God. That is hilarious. <laughs> everybody has those. Everybody has those things where it was kind of like, okay, like, I really... Like this. Like, you know, I mean, Eleanor, like, how many straight edge cocktails did you serve me at fucking hotel? Like, literally, I would be there, everybody'd be like punching each other in the face. They were like, dicks getting sucked at the bar, and I'm (laughs) sitting there (laughs) sitting on a goddamn friggin' cranberry and orange. Yep. You
2: were my (laughs) guinea pig. Every time I invented a drink, I gave I made you drink it. I'm like, what do you think of this? Do you remember the one uh Actually, I think Kathy Bennett invented it. It was like um, a shot with uh, clam juice and vodka and hot sauce and horseradish. It was kind of like a Bloody Mary shot, but it had some other stuff going on. And then that became very popular.
3: Yeah. I thought we played with – Rancid the first time. I thought it was in Salt Lake City or something.
1: No, no, no. He's right. We started the tour. It was like we went down to D.C., we played this one show and then I feel like there was like a night off or something. And then we caught up with them.
3: Yeah. That's like, what it was.
1: We caught up with them maybe in Ohio or maybe Pittsburgh. I just remember every
3: show somebody would like somebody in the audience would jump off the balcony and break their arm or something like that. You know, they
1: no, were that cool. was in Salt Lake city. It was great. And those guys really,
0: I, I will say that, you know, they treated us like fucking gold.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. That was amazing. They did. Absolutely. Throwing us extra,
0: extra loot to pay for gas because they were doing so well. I don't think I had to buy clothing for the entire year after that because I had probably every color and every style of Rancid shirt. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and copies of Let's Go in every format yeah. that, uh, <laughs> that, that existed or heretofore will exist you know, from that from that tour. And I also got to be really good friends with John Reed because yeah. we would sit in the back. Okay. Hey, guy. It's not like we were doing bumps or anything. We were literally eating, like, handfuls of Pixie Sticks, fucking getting hyped <laughs> 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 Like, making fun of the kids. Like, we would give them a free rancid shirt if they could identify the Misfit Skull or Black Flag Bars. Like, we yeah. just... Ah. Wow. We we yeah.
3: That's a good. John's in Austin. He has a tattoo shop in Austin, though.
0: Yeah. 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 I'm I still I still uh, when I go down there for South by, I still see him and his wife. Wow. That's great. Yeah. I mean, the the halo effect of the goops has lasted my entire my entire life. The halo Mm -hmm.
2: effect. That's great.
1: Well, let's not forget the second half of that tour, because who did we come back across the States with? Which was just as much fun. Guttermouth.
0: mouth. Uh, Before (laughs) we jump into that, it's like I just want to say. We stayed in some very interesting places on that tour. Because we didn't stay in the same places at Rancid. We kind of saw them at every gig. They were super cool to us. Everything was great. But, like, we went our own separate ways at night after the gig or whatever. And I just remember we had two very opulent stays.
2: One in Miami
0: and one in Connecticut. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Right. Um,
0: One was on the way out, I believe, and one was on the way back when we were playing with guttermouth right and and that was there now the other thing that we have to remember about that tour is that you guys had to recruit a brand new bass player knuckles because right. because
1: stiff he couldn't make the tour the
0: existing bass player um had flown had flown the coop for this for, for 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 this tour
1: well he had a kid he couldn't do the tour kid yeah, kid wife yeah he was in school Right. He
2: had to, uh, yeah, he couldn't make it. I remember
0: that. We had knuckles. <laughs> <laughs> you got knuckles. How uh, did you guys find knuckles for that tour? How did that transpire? Oh, uh, what a nightmare. Definitely not from our worlds at all.
3: <laughs> Brad, you take this one with your answering machine. Uh, Tell about the answering machine.
1: It. So yeah, so along with all this fucking glory days, <laughs> oh my God. East Village glory days bullshit, <laughs> was that if you wanted to get a, a musician and everybody was locked up that you knew, I mean by locked up, I mean in another band. Yeah, you'd run a fucking ad in the Village Voice and painful. God help you. Painful. <laughs> I started <laughs> recording the fucking ad. The the call when people would call me. Because it was so ridiculous. I had one guy going on for like 10 minutes. I thought it was a prank. I thought it was like Heffman or somebody calling me. This guy's like, he goes, he says, he's telling me like what he's into and this and that. And he's like, yeah, you know, and I play lead bass. And I go, what? He's like, I play lead bass too. I'm like, lead bass? Like lead guitar, <laughs> bass? He's like, he goes, yeah. I go, and I started laughing. I have the recording still. I have it. I'll play it for you. I started laughing. I'm like, why are you telling me this?
2: <laughs> that's, a, that's something you should be ashamed of, sir.
1: <laughs> but anyway, I don't remember what it was, but Knuckles, he's a sweet, sweet dude. He, show, he almost didn't get the gig because he showed up with a fucking Steinberger bass.
3: And leather pants. And
1: leather pants. He, he was from another fucking planet of music, but he was a really good player. And a Tweety Bird t shirt. Remember the Tweety Bird t shirt? Yes.
3: Yes. It kind of looked like. And we cut his hair it.
2: too, right? Yes. It looked like he was, the t shirt was like a self portrait. So he showed up. Or not Tweety Bird. It wasn't Tweety Bird, it was Woodstock. It was Woodstock, a Snoopy that the little bird. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. He had the exact same hairdo as Woodstock.
1: I was like, this is (laughs) strange. No, we gave him the haircut. I think he had long hair and we made him cut his hair.
3: Right. (laughs) (laughs) And he he couldn't use a pick. He had to use his fingers on the bass.
1: But he was a good player and he was a really sweet dude. And so, like, and he didn't play lead bass. So he got the gig.
3: Yeah. I mean, the thing I
0: remember about him. It's like, and, you know, I, I still Facebook on and off with him periodically or whatever it is, but there's two distinct memories that I have of him from back in those times. One is when we were able to get to hotels, he was always the guy. We always made him sleep on the floor. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> last man in the band. <laughs> without, without question. Um, and number two, he had this thing for powdering his balls. <laughs> you know, all, all the baby powder that uh, he used. To use? uh, <laughs> I missed all
3: that. Thank God.
0: Oh. I just remember, like, the going into the take the shower, and all of a sudden, it's just like cloud of talcum that fucking out.
3: Oh. <laughs> oh
0: wow! He must, oh. He literally must have breaded those things like a cutlet.
2: Oh my god, oh, my god. that is hilarious! Yeah, there was no <laughs> ball powdering in our room, Heffman. We, no. we were roommates.
0: Yeah. <laughs> oh, Hesman, you're a powderer also. You don't like no, to no, no, no. no. I said there was no ball powdering in our room.
2: No. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. So you
0: know, Knuckles, I'm sorry if you're listening to this, but it's like those are two memories that stand out <laughs> in my in my head, at least from that particular particular tour.
2: Honestly, he was a good bass player. He was proficient, and I think that he was. Um, <laughs> Uh, malleable do you know what i mean like he uh he took our uh demands uh with with a good uh attitude and i feel like that's how he got the gig yeah absolutely
3: at the end though he kind of he wasn't happy he fell apart a little bit at the end (laughs) the tour broke him dude (laughs) he you know
1: what the rigors of tour with anybody are difficult but You know,
0: yeah. I mean, we didn't have any drug addict problems. We only had Dairy Queen addicts. So, of an upside given, like all the things I know. Like nobody got arrested. Nobody got into fights. Right.
2: Except for me.
1: Yeah.
2: (laughs) I was happy to start fights and
1: let you guys finish them. Yes, that was my mo. Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, anyway, bless you, Knuckles.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, it just had to be said. I think, it, you know, it was just I just think these are hilarious childhood, adolescent, post-adolescent memories. That was
2: such a fun tour. I remember that. That was like summer camp, you know? Yeah. And we we, we had that, uh, or at least I should say I had that requirement that we wherever we stayed had to have a pool.
3: <laughs> yeah, hot tub.
2: And we would and we would often get there so late that, you know, it'd be closed, but we would break in anyhow. And yeah,
3: always. That was
2: really
0: fun. Yes. I recall that blissfully you guys were the band that was uh, well, American Standard really also had their fair share of nudity, but you <laughs> really did, did take it to the highest level. I remember we skinny dipped in in the ocean in in the in the San Francisco Bay. Didn't we? Oh. We were driving up the
3: 101, Muir wow. Woods or something. We went to Muir Muir Beach. Yeah, it was it really was, cold.
0: It was cold as fuck.
2: Yeah,
3: and it was all those ugly people that should not have taken their clothes off when we got there.
0: <laughs> that's right. Right,
3: and then we joined them. Yes, Muir yes, Beach.
2: Them. That's right.
3: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it yeah. was Muir Beach.
2: And we expected because it was so beautiful the setting. I think we expected every beach that we to be like the one down in uh, Florida and <laughs> Treasure Island, where uh, we like would always go auto. to Treasure
3: Island. Yeah, Treasure Island was is the best.
0: Like, I think uh, you know me being like the swimmer person. Like, of course, I was the one who like jumped in and dove in, and then all of a sudden I realized, like, hey, this shit's like forty eight degrees. Crazy. <laughs> and then like I surface and I realize, well, you know, oh look, there's a lot of kelp around here. Oh, <laughs> a lot of kelp. Right. So that means what? Oh, like, yeah, right. Because that's where otters hide from great white sharks. Oh, cool. <laughs>
2: yeah.
0: That makes a lot of sense. I have
2: pictures of that. I have pictures of you emerging from the ocean
0: covered in kelp. Oh, you do? That's beautiful. And my scrap. I got to see
1: it. <laughs> oh, I want to see it.
0: The the, the the place in Florida was uh, <laughs> was just an interesting time. I'll, I'll, uh, it was the Ramada. Remember?
2: It was the Ramada Inn.
3: The Ramada. <laughs> we had them deliver hamburgers to the hot tub and beers and hamburgers. <laughs> we wouldn't get out for like
0: 9 no. hours. Everybody was completely hammered, I think except for Knuckles.
2: <laughs>
0: I can't believe nobody drowned, honestly. <laughs> oh my god. Like cuz we ran from we we ran again in the buff from the beach, into the water, and then dove into the pool, which I believe was in front of the restaurant.
1: <laughs> it was definitely inside of the hotel.
0: The vista from the hotel restaurant. I do not recall.
1: Oh, right. Yeah, it's, it's all a blur. <laughs> Bill, they, uh, a couple of years later on another tour, they stopped us at the bridge and wouldn't let us into Treasure Island. Oh really? <laughs> we're banned. We were banned from Treasure Rock, from that whole I, peninsula. I wonder. Our if Whole we part still of Florida.
0: Are... <laughs> I mean, you know, it, it could, you know, it could have been the fact that, like, I mean, how many people were in the restaurant and just saw our
3: our, our display? That's what I wonder. <laughs> oh, those poor people. We did not give a fuck. That's for sure. We, yeah,
0: we, <laughs> I, I, yeah, we were definitely very, very, very hammered. But you know. <laughs> Very infrequently am I in my own rock and roll hero, so like these, <laughs> these things stand out in my head as mo- moments of crowning achievement that honestly <laughs> most people would love to have fucking one sixteenth of any of these experiences, right oh, so we had fun we we carry all this shit through our lives of all this shit that we did together, and it was some of it was fucked up, but a lot of it was just pure fucking fun, and yeah. that was like that's like the greatest part of having picked music as a quote unquote career for me, you know, is all of these things that I, I don't think too many touring freaking you know, there's not too many touring insurance executives.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, Bill, I think it's important to point out that like, so the band was basically started just for fun. Like that's kind of, it was a goof know.
2: because you were unemployed. Remember that? Yeah. Yeah. And, Pete has like a, a hiatus from Warrior Soul, yeah. and I was just along for the ride,
1: and that's how it happened. Yeah, it and was we a total and, goof. And, and and basically we yeah we had this downtime, and Eleanor was like, guys, let's just do like a punk rock cover band. We'll do like all these weird, like obscure songs that deserve to be heard. Yeah, I still have that mixtape that I made. You for do? Us. Yes. Oh, dude, can you just like send me? Can you just send me the like a like a scan of it? I just want to see the songs because I'm always trying to remember the songs that were on. Sure, that
2: yeah, absolutely. I'll dig it up. And that's when we were called the Mutants. Remember that was our first. Yeah. Game. So
1: she made this mixtape and was like, "Let's cover these songs. We'll do a set. It'll just be for kicks." I remember that. too. And what happened was we bo- we all had so much downtime that when we got together to rehearse, we we didn't fucking practice. We just started writing songs. <laughs> They were like coming out of us. Like yeah. I had just got this new guitar and I had tuned it to like an open tuning. So I was like kind of like just fucking around with like new sounds. Before we knew it, we had you know we had a bunch of originals.
2: What was the new guitar? Was that the Red Gibson?
1: Yeah, yeah. Oh. I had just got that guitar and I wow. just started fucking around with the open tuning. Oh no, you're underwater! Just, like, just led to like all those all those early riffs were all based on that tuning. Wow,
2: I remember. Do you still have that guitar?
1: Yeah, I do. Getting
0: back to the the question that we we, we talked about, um, let's talk about some of the places that we stayed, other than the the hotel adventures. <laughs> I remember like the two the, the two there were the two opulent places and the one standout horrific place with the bloodstains on the sheets. <laughs> and it was like <laughs> yeah. it was crazy. I mean that the the Connecticut compound for this particular family yes. was like You want to comment
2: on that, Brad?
3: No.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
3: oh, that's where we had like the, the wine from the wine cellar and all oh, that was great.
0: Yeah, but like, I just remember us getting there kind of late, you know, yeah. and then waking up in the morning and there was a guest house. It wasn't even the main house. It was right. a guest house right. attached to, you know, as part of like a five house kind of like compound. And then waking up in the morning with, like, you know, a full glass of water, getting up, taking a shower, coming back. The bed was made, and there were – my clothes were, like, packed already, and there was a fresh bottle of water sitting on the thing, like, poof. Yeah. Like, yeah. You know, whoa. And then going downstairs to where there was a full breakfast already prepared. That's right. I remember that. Like, eating breakfast, and then literally, like, us walking outside, coming back, and then there was nothing there. But you didn't see a fucking person. <laughs> It was like Poltergeist handled the entire shit, and like this is not something that I was used to. No,
3: not at all.
1: No, well, I gotta say, I mean, I so I gotta clear this up. This was not my uh, home. <laughs> I was dating a delightful young lady whose parents were uh, loaded, and we stayed at her mom's house, and then we stayed at her dad's house
3: in Miami. Yeah, that's right.
0: Miami was ridiculous because on the way home we were with Guttermouth. And all of us were like, "Oh!" And we, I guess, we played somewhere with Guttermouth in Florida, Miami, and we're like, "Oh, we got a place to stay. Cool." We roll up to one of these like palatial. Was it South Beach or
3: yeah, South yeah, Beach, somewhere like that, like
0: yeah. high, high rises. Yep. Yeah. And I just remember, like, I've never been butled before, but apparently a butler came out and was like, um, "Mr. Worrell, you know." <laughs> We're here here to show you to the apartment. And it's like, we kind of went upstairs. Oh, yeah,
2: there was a concierge. I remember that.
0: I just remember... Paintings. There's two things I remember from that. One is I slept in the room with the Picasso. Right, the artwork on the wall was incredible. But it was just so amazing because the juxtaposition of, like, gutter mouth and Picasso, it almost fits. (laughs) It's just the continuum (laughs) of art. Right, going from let's just say a little bit more lowbrow to quite highbrow.
1: Well, it was pretty surreal because those guys all stayed there too, right? Didn't we all stay? Yeah, they stayed with us. Jamie, Jamie,
0: Jamie, Jamie slept on the uh, in the other bed in the uh, in the Picasso room. Ah, that's right.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that was pretty surreal. That was. I don't remember.
0: I don't remember where Mark's. I don't remember where all you guys were, but I just remember. Sleeping like a baby that
2: night.
1: That was either really, really punk rock or really not punk rock. I don't know. <laughs>
2: it, it was a combination thereof. Do you remember the club? It, it sort of looked like it was supposed to be in New Orleans, but it was. It had like a mezzanine, and the kids were like hanging from the second floor balcony. Oh, oh yeah, well, Guttermouth brought out Guttermouth definitely brought out, and some- there was a huge crowd. It was like a really good
0: show. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. All the club shows kind of blur together because I was too busy (laughs) selling shirts. Yeah. I
2: don't know. For some reason, that one stands out in my mind. Everything else is a blur, but I do remember that club because I remember it was a really good show.
0: Do you guys remember the worst, at least my archetypal worst place in the world?
1: On that tour? Worst place to play
2: or stay? No, no. Worst place to stay. The worst place we stayed. The Trucker Motel. The Trucker Motel with the blood on the sheets.
3: That was pretty bad, but we stayed somewhere in Texas.
0: Oh, yes, that's exactly what I'm talking (laughs)
2: about.
3: There there was a a garage, and we went upstairs, and the building was, like, going back and forth, and I said, fuck this, But I went and slept in the van.
0: Yeah. Oh, I think I did, too, that night. I was like, nope. And by the way, do you remember the the
3: entire setting for that hellscape? Because it was. There was a, the floor was flooded. The bathroom was flooded. Yeah.
2: Uh, oh, that was in Houston. And there were these ugly yeah. kids
3: playing like strip twister in the middle of that the room. That was or in
2: Houston. You know, <laughs> you know why I don't remember that place that you're describing? Because that was the show. Do you remember? I could not even stand. I was so drunk. I could not even stand for that show. And I wandered off after the show with some fans or whatever and stayed with them and i have no idea how we ever like hooked up the next oh yeah i don't
0: remember that at all i just remember (laughs) with that house heffman you and i are completely aligned not only was the place ramshackle and literally the more people that got into it the more it would list yeah from side to side so i'm sure if everybody ran from one side of the house to the other the motherfucker would have collapsed it
3: would have collapsed
2: they had just had like a, a tornado or a hurricane and that part of the city was flooded. It was, I remember that.
0: It was Houston. The, no, the sky was on fire. There was a fucking, there was a fucking, there was a, there was a oil, oil refinery fire that literally <laughs> lit up the sky. Oh, <laughs> God. God. oh it was
2: I remember that. Rips. Oh my God. Yeah, yeah,
3: yeah. That was so weird. There was some festival going on in Houston when we got right, there.
2: Right, And it was the like the end of the winter.
3: We had been like freezing our asses off. When we get down there, and everybody was like naked in the street. We're like, where the fuck right, are we? Right, that's right. This is Texas, right? Like, yeah. I, I thought everybody was going to be a redneck, and it was totally different. Yeah, a bunch of, of all freaks. The colleges
2: there. There was like a real scene. It was. I probably could have been a really fun place, but I think we only went there once. I don't remember playing in Houston more than once.
1: No, we played Houston again. Just probably stayed in a hotel. <laughs> it was, it <laughs> also, we used to old. drive because we, we used to always drive from Houston to uh, to Florida because we we didn't until Sam I am we didn't have like. Uh, wait, what am I thinking?
3: No, we played the. Howl we played New, New Orleans. Yeah, we played the. Howl right, so Wolf we in did. New Orleans.
1: I don't know. I think we usually drove from Houston though.
0: In New Orleans, I think that was the only time I ever got mad at you guys. Why did you get mad at us? Because you guys were fucking shit-faced and I had to be straight to drive only. <laughs> uh, yeah,
3: probably. Oh, Bill, Bill, do you remember, you have to remember this, we were in like Oregon or like Western Washington State and it, it, you and I, you were driving and I was in the co-pilot seat. And we came around. We were like driving through these mountains, and we saw all of a sudden it was like an owl that was like. That was me. Feet tall. I was driving. No, I thought it was Bill. No, no,
0: I was. Def- I, w- I was in the front because I remember seeing it, but I just definitely remember. <laughs> I remember seeing the snow. It was like a snowy owl because he. To me, it looked like he was fucking human-sized owl, exactly, turning around and staring at us in the face like "fuck you, motherfucker," and he was standing on like on the double yellow.
3: Yeah, exactly. Wow, I'll never forget. I'm glad I didn't just imagine this shit.
0: <laughs> oh no, you definitely didn't imagine it. But you were in pain that night anyway, so
3: no. Oh, that was uh, when I got the blue ball. Uh, don't. Brad get, got me into the blue ball situation. That was in Bend, Oregon. No, yeah. oh, my God. don't go there.
1: <laughs> Brad, Brad,
0: Brad the cock blocker. That was great for the whole the whole time. You're sitting there like <laughs> this girl likes you. She walks to she brings you back to the van. You know, romance about to ensue, and then Vladimir fucking rushes right in and
3: fucking tells him, we gotta go. We gotta go. We had to drive, man. I hurt from my knees to my shoulders. I was in pain. (laughs) I lay in the back of the van moaning all the way across the fucking state. (laughs) Wow.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And then do you also remember that there was a, in the dressing room, there was actually dressing happening. And I, by that, I mean the dressing of a dead deer. Absolutely. Yeah. I
2: remember that like it was yesterday.
3: I missed, I missed that. You guys talked about that, but I never, I don't oh, remember. Yeah. That. I was Maybe too busy was trying right to get it. laid.
0: Like <laughs> I had never seen that before. And literally I walk into the dressing room and there's a fucking deer carcass strapped to a fucking, basically strapped to an X like a wooden X they were slicing the fucking thing open. And I was just like, what the hell is this? Yeah. It was like, I felt that was like, it was like the precursor for that movie green room. I was like, what the <laughs> fuck is going on here?
2: That yeah. was an amazing show at the that Roller rank. So I remember that very well. I'm oh, great.
1: that's online. That, that I think that's on somebody posted video from that show. Oh, oh yeah. 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 It. Yeah. Yep. yeah. That was a great show. That was a good show. Yeah.
0: It was great. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, that was, that was a fun tour for me. Right. Like, and when I got back, I went on other tours, you know, and like kind of, you but you guys definitely broke my rock and roll cherry in a lot of ways. So (laughs) uh, yeah, it was very cool. Um,
1: it was good for us too, Bill.
0: (laughs) And then, uh, and then, you know, after the, after the tour happened, you know, there was a lot of hubbub starting to circulate around you guys, right? You did another tour with Sam I Am, you know, and then major labels came kind of sniffing around. Um, you know, you had recorded – we did a cool comic book 7-inch um, for oh, yeah. one just left. Um, we tried to have an ill-fated um, – you know, with Booz Cabana, we tried to kind of have an ill-fated play it. Uh, commercial alternative radio, which is really kind of a joke, and I got soaked for a bunch of money that I shouldn't have spent. But that oh, was my oh. champagne tasting caviar dreams. Because
2: um, <laughs> you hired the 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 radio promoter guy who was so
0: like controversial.
2: Oh. Yeah, yeah. I forgot his name. Jacobs.
0: Yeah, I, I remember remember, but I don't want to freaking even. I don't, yeah, it's yeah. kind of like couple uh, yeah. still skin. You say it too many times. Right, and, right. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I remember. Um so but you know all in all like it was a pretty successful punk rock record and we had a great time doing that and the singles and all that stuff and then you kind of got back to New York and then you know that was when the punk rock fever was in level 10 mode. Right? Right. And you got approached by a sub label of 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 Sire to kind of, to, to sign with them. So, you know.
1: No, it was, it was reprise. The courting
0: process definitely had begun.
2: Sub-label of reprise. Yeah. Right. But Sire was sniffing around too at one point, I remember.
1: Yeah, no, there was a few labels that were, that were sniffing, but you know, speaking of like the timing, it's funny because... It was literally like within the few month period when punk rock kind of exploded. Because on that tour with Guttermouth, I remember we played at like um, Ari- Arizona or New Mexico. No, it wasn't New Mexico. Colorado. It. No, it was in Arizona. We played a show, and Jamie was like, dude, we were just here like six weeks ago with Offspring, and they were opening for us. Right. So that was literally the tour like that was the month that Offspring blew up. But it yeah, it all happened kind of within like a three month period. So yeah, it was very quick.
0: It was very it was very crazy. And, you know, it was during kind of the as the labels were starting to court you, you know, I had I was able to get you guys um on the Mole rat soundtrack.
3: Yes. Oh uh, yeah, yeah.
0: And then So during all the hubbub of you guys getting courted in New York and, you know, all the stuff that was happening on your side, like... All the dinners.
1: (laughs) uh, Oh, yeah. yeah, All the dinners.
0: But, you know, hey, free food is part of it, right? Yeah, baby. At that point, I I remember kind of like, not the the tail end of your label life, not the friendship life with Blackout, was the kind of like, the rats thing, you guys got to play Comic-Con you played the premiere oh, yeah. played the 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 party for the premiere of that's right. Um, that's right and and i will say and brad knows where i'm going with this is the biggest thing in my entire time of putting out records is when kevin smith wanted to put you guys in a video and you said oh, no
3: oh i know <laughs> That was a tricky <laughs> we- <laughs> thing because we were actually recording Lucky no, at that time.
1: We just were too fucking punk rock for our own god No, country, no, dude. no, no. I
3: talked I talked to uh, <laughs> people from the label from Reprise and they were kinda it was they wanted to break us. And it was like and we tried to come up I, I found a treatment that I wrote for a video for that. And we all were, wrote it. The one where we bombed the movie set. Yeah, we were all working on this thing. Yeah, and, and then, but then it, it just like the label kind of really didn't want us to do, it, which I don't understand. But I
1: looked No, no, no. The fucking <laughs> the movie company did not want us to do a video where we flew over the set and bombed the movie. That was what. That was the, what we came up with. As right. like, we'll do it if you let us do. It was one of those. Fu- it was just like the decision not to do to recut, fucking vulgar appetites. Because it was too fast. And I remember coming out of the coming out of the studio and the engineer and the producer, everybody going like, that was pretty fast. That tempo was kind of fast. I'm like, fuck it, it's punk rock. It's not like it's gonna be the single. Wow, yeah, right. And we never redid it. We didn't recut it.
3: It was at Sear Sound. We did it like super fast because we had been on tour playing it like every night.
1: Right.
3: We start the tour and the set was 45 minutes long. And then at the end of the tour, it was 20 minutes long.
1: (laughs) (laughs) There were some bad, bad decisions based on punk. What is that
2: review that you, that you read bill at the top, that review said we were airtight. And that's what that was about. (laughs) We squoze all the air bubbles out of all the songs. Yeah. Yeah,
0: I mean, from that entire episode, you guys were exceptionally gracious to me during that whole transition to the major liberal period, so it's fine. I still, however, think to this day it's kind of like saying, you know, especially when MTV gave Kevin Smith an entire day,
3: yeah, we fucked video, that up. Big time. The video the
0: video, the video for the song was literally just him, Jay and Silent Bob smashing shit up. Oh yeah. <laughs> God. missed opportunity. Missed and opportunity. I was just like, I was just like, no. I felt like, you know, like on the waterfront, I could have been a contender.
3: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we definitely Bill, fucked that up. I don't think
1: this is what you were saying, but I do want to say it, is I think that the Goop's legacy is definitely all based on things that you made happen, or at least were a catalyst in, you know, because I think that Rancid tour was really big. Stormy Shepard was one of the hugest, I don't I didn't remember whether you made that intro or not, but I mean, Stormy bless her. One of the greatest people in music um, who became our booking agent. She was and serious. then, yeah, those two videos, dude, like these are the, do you know how many like millennials are so impressed by the fact that we were on the mall Rat soundtrack and Beavis and Butthead to them? That's like the coolest thing in the world. That's hilarious.
0: <laughs> uh, you know, I'm Sicilian. So I tend to always look at the negative side of things. <laughs> <laughs> so I am always like, it could have been so much better. I don't understand it. We should look they could have been that Eleanor. Look, she's she's much prettier than Kevin Smith over here. Why could <laughs> they put this on her in the video? Oh my god, was it crazy? Yeah. It was crazy. <laughs> yeah. It was crazy. Yeah. 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 But it was you know crazy. what? Zig when we should have zagged and I have an entire book full of those things. So I just try not to do, do replicate the same mistakes over and over again. Um, but that doesn't necessarily work all the time either, but yeah, man, I mean, but that was my job, right? I mean, I didn't play an instrument. I didn't do anything. My job was to kind of help make things happen, but like ultimately, you know, I could bring people to the, to, to you guys, but your personalities and the music that you created was really, you know, the catalyst for people loving you. Like I brought a bunch of shit to Stormy that she didn't like. She loves you guys. Right. Right. Um, you know, personality wise, you got a lo- you know, you, you got, you know, you, we had a love fest with the dudes in Rancid and it was fucking, which continues in some ways to this day. And who told you that? Yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know, there's a lot of different things that, so, well, 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 thank you for a little bit of the kudos. I really think that it was, it was, you know, everybody just did their fucking job. And when good shit happens, good shit happens. And when it doesn't, there's a million reasons why. Again, just look into the future or whatever it is. You just hopefully don't make the same fucking dumb mistakes you did when you were uh, when you were a kid. We had well, so we much fun. <laughs> so talk a little bit more about kind of your your journey with Lucky, what what your insight was into that whole situation, and then the eventual kind of disillusion of the band.
2: Yeah, Lucky Lucky was. Uh it's funny because I was listening to it kind of recently and it just, uh, there's certain parts of it that are, that sound so good, you know, and my recollection of making that record was, uh, not good. You know, I just feel like where I was at in my own head was, you know, not super great. And, uh, I remember, the recording process being kind of arduous, whereas the first one was, you know, really fun and whatnot. But whatever made it onto tape sounded pretty good. I mean, I've joked with Brad in the intervening years that we should just re record the entire record of Lucky and put it out ourselves, and, you know, like, which is a ridiculous idea, but maybe not. Maybe it's not so ridiculous. I
1: don't know. I also listened to it recently because they finally got it on digital. Um, I think maybe that you might've had something to do with that as well.
3: 25 years.
2: (laughs) Matchhead. Matchhead sounded really great to me.
1: Yeah. A lot, a lot of the songs, I mean, all the songs that i at the time was not totally satisfied with. I feel like they sound a lot better than I remember at the time. And yeah, there was, it wasn't a fun process again. Like, you know, I think the impo- I think a lot of people from the outside saw this as, like, this successful indie punk rock band, accomplished all this shit, and then they go to the major label, and the major label destroys them. And it was quite literally the opposite scenario. Like, when we got to Reprise, everybody fucking loved us. They wanted us to succeed. I mean, we, we did a tour of the office, and our manager, who we had just basically signed after signing to the label, was like, He's like, you know, I've managed a lot of bands. I've never, I've never seen the, a label so excited about a new artist. If there was any mistakes made, the label made the mistake of giving us too much, like, control. And we made a lot of bad decisions. I think, I don't think we made a great decision about the producer that we chose. And that's not a reflection on him. I think it's just, it was just, it was just a, it was just a, uh, it was just a mismatch Our heads were in a little bit of an odd space.
3: You nailed it, Brad. They gave us too much control. They they just were like, they just let us do what we wanted to do, and it was a mistake. We needed guidance.
1: We didn't have a manager when we recorded that record, and we really needed an adult in the room. Because like I said, like, I mean, that's the story about Vulgar Appetites, you know, like, I can't, you know, that was the best song on the record. And that's the one they ended up making the single. And that should have really been not only recorded again, but like, Yeah, it should have just been, it should have been a better take. We should have concentrated more on it. And we were trying to make another punk rock record. um, And we just, we weren't, we didn't, we didn't do a good enough job. And I think that we needed another adult in the room and the label gave us too much freedom.
2: Yeah, I think that we had some anxiety about the transition from uh, like uh, the prestigious indie cred label of Blackout and working with Don Fury with that whole pedigree then moving to this, uh, you know, reprise, kinetic reprise, you know, at least for me, I had some anxiety about that, about what that
3: looked like. You wrote a song about it on the record.
2: Right, exactly. Change your mind. Change right? your mind because I had so much anxiety about it. It was like directed toward other bands that would criticize us for making that decision. But it was really, it was coming from me and my own anxiety about that decision. And so I think that we Comp and we tried to overcompensate for that decision by making like a, what we thought was going to be like a really rough, uh, incendiary sounding record. And that's probably what accounts for, like you say, Brad, like not re-recording Vulgar Appetites and insisting on recording it uh, in that sort of live fashion with all of us in the room, because For me, anyway, I did not differentiate between what we were as a live band and what we were on record. And in the intervening years, I'm realizing more and more as each year goes by, how important it is to make that differentiation and take advantage of the fact that you're in a recording studio. You can make a record. It doesn't have to be a fucking Steely Dan sounding record,
3: right? Exactly. but
2: you really need to take advantage of the fact and, you know, create those dynamics and whatnot, because the live show is something else. It's a different animal. It's like the two totally. different things that you offer the world with uh, when you're a band. And, you know, I, I realize that now, but, so I, what I'm hearing is that you all want to re-record Lucky then. Is that <laughs> <laughs> For Blackout. <laughs> yes. Yes. It's going to be your, uh, your, your, your new fall release uh, for Blackout, Bill.
3: But Eleanor, you know I want to do it in like Tiki style. I want to do it. In, we'll start
0: with vulgar appetites.
3: I want to do it in Cal Jader. I want to do it like a Cal Jader song. Though.
0: Right, right. We well, would do both. We would
2: do both. We'd offer both, you know, because in the digital universe, you know, we can do that.
0: Well, you you guys were all, I mean, it's just so funny because, you know, given the way that music is marketed now, especially during COVID and all this shit with all the social media stuff, you guys were fucking, could have been social media fucking gold. You know, different time, different place, whatever. But the wacky hijinks that went on throughout all the years would have made some really great and potentially embarrassing posts to look back on.
1: <laughs> oh, God.
3: No way. We wouldn't have survived, dude. <sighs> That was all just, that was the other thing. We were on the cusp of all the, I remember like Rancid showed up one day and they had a camera and they were like, we can take a picture and we can put it on a website, on a computer. We were <laughs> like, what are you talking about?
2: Oh my God. That's it true. Was, remember, was, remember the digital guy at um, at yeah, Warner Brothers? Yeah. We had like meetings with him and we were just like, what did he, what was he just talking about? Like we would yeah. leave meetings. And like, just, why is this important? Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we were such
0: dinosaurs. Good lord. Yeah, but in, in other ways we weren't. Like we also like, I mean, you guys, I mean, think about this. On that rancid tour, Brad designed an illustrator on my shitty laptop in the in the van. This right. is yes. <laughs>
3: yeah.
0: he designed the logo in the van. the logo, awesome. yeah. the logo in the van in in Illustrator. Cool. He got it printed out in a service bureau on like some day off in some bumfuck place or something like that I distinctly remember we printed it out somewhere and then FedExed it to Cinderblock so by the time you guys got to SF you had new fucking t-shirts ready
3: yep i remember yeah. that like, I remember picking that up that was
0: some, that was some next level shit for something that you know, before the internet even existed. Not there were There were these brief glimpses into tech forward, and nobody had any idea of what social would actually mean. I mean, think about how shitty websites were back then with all the blinky things and the, you know, stupid explosion highlights and, like, the 8-bit characters. It was a shit show back then.
3: Wow. I thought Brad was some kind of, like, computer genius, and I didn't know anything about it. I wasn't even interested.
2: Yeah, I have a memory of Brad working on the logo as we were driving uh, across Alligator Alley in Florida. Am I conflating two different things? But I I remember him in the van, and there was like snapping turtles and alligators littered across the highway because there had just been a big rainstorm the night before. (laughs) Oh
1: yeah, Alligator Alley. I like that.
0: Uh, I remember the sign from from that from that journey, which is like, "Please do not feed or molest the alligators."
3: let's go <laughs> beat up an alligator
0: hot yeah so the the lucky record came out clearly your your guys headspaces were differentiated i think eleanor you moved to la at some point during this entire entire process right
2: yes yes i moved my stuff to la <laughs> my logic was that since we were on tour constantly it did not matter where my stuff was. And I ha- had fallen in love with the drummer of Sam I Am. And, and he lived in L.A. So I moved to Los Angeles. And uh, also we were losing our um, our place in New York. Our lease was up. We had this huge uh, two-bedroom apartment. You guys remember that huge place. The clubhouse. On- yeah. We were losing that. And we had to either, you know, find another place, late and we were that place was like way under market value what we paid for that $800 or something like that and so the prospect of moving out and finding a place at market value kind of uh, freaked me out so I just took the opportunity and but Brad and and I moved to LA oh yeah that's right Brad I forgot you uh you went to LA for for a little bit and then everything fell apart
3: But the thing, I think that one of the worst things that happened basically that kind of really sucks is that we were just together all the time. I mean, it was like, I remember coming off of tour and then the very next day we go down to the blackouts office, we go to your place, Bill, and we all like went in the smallest room in the apartment and all like laid next to each other. And I (laughs) was like, we, we, we we really needed to get the fuck away from each other, but instead we were just like. We didn't know what to do. We thought we got this label. We got this big record deal. Now we have to fucking write songs. And we got all caught up and like stressed out about it. And really all we needed to do was go take six months off. And yeah, go we needed to take somewhere. a break. Yeah,
2: totally. And we, we
3: didn't. And everybody got out of control. And then, you know, I fucking walked out and the whole thing went to hell. We needed a, a,
2: our Ireland uh,
3: hiatus. Exactly. <laughs> that's, what I, <laughs> <laughs> that's what I needed.
2: Our, du- our Dublin hiatus.
1: <laughs> going, going back through some of this, you know, looking, I mean, I scanned a bunch of stuff for Bill and just kind of going through some of the archives and, and actually even listening to some of the, the, you know, I I recently released a couple of songs that were on the Blackout record that we had done with Don Don Fury, the producer, like before signing. And like that, that time period, you know, the tail end of Pete, I don't think that we were as slick and professional as we ended up becoming later with Stiff in the band and after touring. But it was definitely kind of the creative apex of what the band was, which was like the world's best party band to go see at Continental on a fucking Friday night.
3: The loudest band in New York City
1: And I just, I don't, you know, I think that like, not that there's bands that don't go from that into like to become Green Day, but I, you know, I think that like, if you look at sort of the creative output, if you look at the excitement within the band and even like the songs that we were writing, I just feel like there was like, there was a moment in time there when it was just, it was, and it was before we took it seriously. It was when we were all just doing it for fun. I mean, we couldn't be a band with Pete in the band because he had a band. That was like a very big band at the time that was paying the bills, so we didn't take any of it seriously, and that was the time that we were the most creative.
2: Especially you with your fur chaps, you did not take it seriously.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but like, think of the Boss Fuel gigs, right? Right. Like that was kind of what I consider the best time in the Goops, oh, it was like when we were going up so to Providence fun. to play with Boss Fuel, or like really before it started to get too serious. And I don't think that it's not that we were like. Immature and not up to it It's just like That's what that band was It was kind of like It was kind of a Band of bratty Fucking
3: Goops Yeah <laughs> You guys had the fur pants Remember the fur pants Those oh, were yeah. great Agatha I think Made them for you
1: She did She did
3: Thank you no, I didn't that. get any furry pants
1: Yeah <laughs> 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 We'll take
0: up a collection and get you some fur pants this year.
3: (laughs) You used to wear like a teddy bear coat or something, didn't you? You and Brad had these like kind of furry coats. I call it the rug coat. The rug coat. That was it.
0: A lot of faux fur going on back then. (laughs) But all of these experiences, right? You know, this is the, this is kind of the, I guess we've, the wrap up sort of things. But like when I look back at my history with, I won't say all the bands, but most of the bands, but especially you guys, I look at everything as very familial and part of this like wonderful carny experience that I had growing up. I don't know if I could duplicate being on the road now the same. Way. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't think my liver could handle it, <laughs> but like, it's great to like, you know, see Brad every once in a while. Heffman, I haven't seen you, you know, in in, in human form in, quite, in a long time. Yeah, a long I've time. Facebook posts.
3: Yeah.
0: Um, yeah. Eleanor and I, you know, when I go out to L.A., there's usually a dinner somewhere involved. So it's like, it's great to maintain those kind of friendships and the whole, even the, the larger group of people from those days. Like, I don't think a lot of people carry that kind of, I don't want to say legacy because that carries too much gravitas, but not too many people have these kind of shared bonding experiences unless you're like in a submarine or the military.
2: (laughs) And that's what it was like. It was like being in a submarine.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I was,
3: (laughs) I was always talking about the one (laughs) Oh nine. Yeah. We were very, um,
1: we were all very close. And I think, you know, that that's kind of what makes it more difficult when things when things do maybe start to turn a little bit is that uh, we were very much like family. Yeah. You know?
0: Well, I mean, the fact that you guys can all get on the podcast 25 years later, you know, and having known each other for now, you know, 30 plus years, you know, Eleanor and Heffman knowing each other for more is a real testament to us as people, I think. And the fact that we really did have a great fucking
3: time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I met Eleanor when she was 16 and I was 20. So, yeah, we've known each other a long time. We haven't talked much lately, but I hope we will a lot more in the near future.
2: Aren't you going to talk about the bikini? What bikini? <laughs> <laughs> Brad in a bikini?
3: What? <laughs> oh,
2: God. No. No. That wouldn't
1: be news. That would not be news. No.
2: No, that's true. I was I was really young. I was sixteen when Heffman and I met. Heffman was in my sister's class in school.
3: Yeah. Oh, the bikini. Yeah, that, that when I first met you, you were taking it off. <laughs> <laughs> the first time I met Eleanor, she was naked.
0: <laughs> and you know, it's, it's like, and and, and 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 thusly and thusly it started. Th- some things never change. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: oh my God. Sound design and mixing for a mad at the world is by Brad Worrell at SoundWeb. Illustrations for each episode are by Christian Minnick. You can follow his art at Cartoons on Instagram. And if you like what we're doing, Follow us on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, at Blackout NYHC, and on Facebook and YouTube, at Blackout Records. Got a comment or a suggestion for us? Hit us at M-A-T-W at BlackoutRecords.com. See you next time.